Now hear God's word. Now after these events, Paul resolved in his spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines to Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. <clears throat> These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, and even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But they, when they recognized he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Grass withers, the flower fades. God's word stands forever. Let's pray together as we come to consider God's word to us this morning. Our Father and our God, how grateful we are once again to be gathered together and for the privilege and for the freedom that we have, for the opportunity that you give us to come into your presence and to hear from your word. We recognize that these words have been breathed out by you, that they are the Holy Spirit's words to us recorded now in this scripture which is complete and all sufficient for every matter of life and faith and godliness. And so, Father, we pray that as we study them, that you will illuminate their truth to us, that you will help us not only to understand, but to trust, and that you will continue to transform our lives by the renewing of our minds as your word does its work within us. God, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the great lessons of Scripture, and one of the great lessons of, of history, really, that seems kind of paradoxical to us is this. It's that when God's people are walking by faith, when God's people are living in faithfulness to God, they grow and Christ's church thrives under the weight of and in the reality of persecution. Persecution. 
Doesn't James say to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds? For we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness will have its full effect that we may be made perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. And so, God sovereignly ordains and uses trials, hardships, sufferings, even persecution in order to make us perfect, in order to complete us, in order to sanctify His people, in order to refine and strengthen His church. This is how God works. Effective churches in this world are bold churches in a world that is full of falsehood and lies and deceit and sin and immorality and idolatry. The effective church is the church that is bold, that stands firm. And bold churches are often made strong through suffering. When we're bold, the devil will stand against us. And as he stands against us, we can be confident that the Lord is using him to accomplish his purposes in us. I was reminded last week by one of our dear brothers here of Luther's statement about the devil. And that as much as he rages, he is God's devil. He is on that chain and always accomplishes against his own will the sovereign purposes that God has for him to accomplish in this world, in His church, and in our lives. In the 16th century, a man lived, an English historian named John Fox, and he wrote his famous work that was originally titled Acts and Monuments. We know it more commonly as Fox's Book of Martyrs. And in that book, John Fox chronicles pretty graphically all of the various persecutions that the church endured throughout its history up until that time. And many, many of the martyrdoms of God's faithful people, beginning with the apostles, tracing all throughout the early ages of the church and the Middle Ages. And my favorite quote from that book, as John Fox enumerates all the sufferings that the church of Jesus Christ endured until that time, my favorite quote is when he writes this, He says, and yet, notwithstanding all these continual persecutions and horrible punishments, the church daily increased, deeply rooted in the doctrine of the apostles and of men apostolic, and watered plenteously with the blood of the saints." Through persecution, God builds His church, not just in spite of suffering, but by way of suffering, God strengthens and refines and purifies His people. We know that because Jesus told His disciples, didn't didn't He, that, that they could expect to encounter opposition and persecution and suffering in their time in this world because they were His disciples. And he was no stranger to suffering himself. And in fact, suffering and death was the hallmark of his ministry, wasn't it? He was a a man of sorrows. He was well acquainted with grief. And servants are not greater than their masters. And so if the world hated him, he said, you can expect that they'll hate you too. But again, praise God that the sufferings of his people and of his church never ever hinder, never ever impede, never ever stall or or thwart the purposes of God to redeem His people and to sanctify His people and to build His church. And in fact, it is so often through the fiery trials of suffering and affliction that our God is mercifully doing His work and accomplishing His purposes. The church of Jesus Christ is watered plenteously with the blood of the saints, and as it is, it thrives and is made strong and stable and bold through persecution. And the early church, recorded here in the book of Acts by Luke, they faced persecution from the outset, didn't they? 
This isn't something new. This is something that's been going on since the beginning. From the inception of the church, they were dealing with persecution. And that persecution came from a host of different sources. And it came in all kinds of different forms. And here at the end of Acts chapter 19, we see another one of them. Early in the book of Acts, didn't we see in Jerusalem persecution coming immediately from the organized power structures of the Jewish religion? And it came in chapters 4 through 8 from the Pharisees. And then in Antioch we saw in chapter 13, didn't we? Persecution growing up and out of prejudice, racism, oppression, Injustice and envy in Lystra. It was worldly and secular paganism and idolatry, false religion that produced persecution against the church of Jesus Christ as they stood firm for the truth of God's Word. In Philippi, it was a reaction against the Holy Spirit's power over the the satanic and demonic realm of darkness because a slave girl who had been inhabited by demons was being oppressed, was being used, was being exploited by evil men and the apostles set her free from that bondage. And that resulted in persecution against Paul and against the church of Jesus Christ there in Philippi. In Thessalonica, suffering came from the greedy hearts of jealous Religious leaders who stirred up a mob in the streets of the city. Acts chapter 17. In Corinth, in chapter 18, persecution came again from the jealousy of the Jewish people. And they appealed to the secular Roman courts to try to stifle the Word of God in the church. So it's everywhere throughout Acts. And it comes from all kinds of different motivations and sources and in all kinds of different forms. Wherever the church boldly and faithfully proclaims the gospel and stands firm on the word of God, the church can expect to face opposition in this world. And the reality is this, as we saw even last week, behind all of the opposition that comes from various places and for various reasons in this world, behind it all lies the power of the evil one. Lies the power and the influence of Satan himself, the devil, who works through all kinds of schemes and strategies to deceive and to destroy as he opposes the kingdom of God in this world with with all kinds of hostility. And so it doesn't come as any surprise now, at the end of Acts chapter 19, to see satanic hostility and persecution once again, at work once again, in opposition to Paul's ministry and to the ministry of the Word of God and the Gospel in the city of Ephesus. Last time, last week we saw, Paul had a a lengthy ministry during his time in Ephesus. He spent a couple of years there. And we saw that through Paul, the power of God was being manifested marvelously in the city through healings and through miracles and through the casting out of demons. You remember last week we saw that there was a group of unbelieving Jewish exorcists who tried to mimic what Paul was doing by casting out demons on their own. They thought the Power of God was something that was just up for grabs, and so they tried to lay hold of it just by invoking Jesus' name, by by trying to use Jesus kind of as a, a religious talisman to wave around in order to cast out the demons. And that didn't go well for them, because that's not what Jesus is. He's not a talisman. He's not a mantra. He's not just an incantation. He's not just a, a ritual that can be used in the pursuit of whatever we want in this world. Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord who is to be worshipped, who is to be served, who is to be praised. And those guys, remember, weren't doing any of that. So when they tried to claim authority over demons, the power and the authority of Jesus wasn't with them. And so the demons didn't have any regard for them, didn't recognize them. Who are you? And then they beat the tar out of them, the demons did. And that caused everybody in Ephesus, by God's good providence, to be terrified of the demons and to turn to Christ. 
to turn away from, to abandon all of their demonic and occultic and superstitious practices. They burned their books of witchcraft in the city. And so in that way, see, through the persecution, through the hardship, the Word of the Lord was flourishing and prevailing over the satanic powers of darkness in Ephesus. And so now, verse 21 tells us, Paul began to make plans to move on from Ephesus and to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, eventually to get back to Jerusalem. But he wanted to see Rome. And we're going to see all of those journeys as we move on in the rest of the book of Acts. But here now, in verse 23, Luke records that there arose in Ephesus more disturbance, more trouble, more opposition because of what the Word of God was accomplishing in Ephesus. He says there was no little disturbance concerning the way. You remember what that phrase means, right? The way, I mentioned it to you last week. The the name, the way, was an early title for the Christian faith. Probably it came from Jesus' statement in John 14 and verse 6 that He is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father but through Him. So because Christ is the way, His followers define themselves and define the Christian faith and define the church as the way, the only way to God. And here again in Ephesus, there arose a great disturbance concerning the way, Luke says, concerning the growing church of Jesus Christ in in Ephesus. And once again, of course, behind the scenes, the unseen cause of that disturbance that was brewing and that was going to boil over into this kind of full-blown riot in the city, the power behind that was the satanic realm's antagonism to the Word of God that was flourishing, remember, that was prevailing over the forces of darkness there in Ephesus. You remember from verse 10 that the Word of God and the ministry of the Gospel were flourishing so much during this period of time that literally it says everyone who resided, not just in Ephesus, but in the entire province of Asia, they all ended up hearing the Gospel. As Paul preached it every day in the hall of Tyrannus, and then people who heard it took it with them all throughout Asia on their travels, throughout that whole region. And so, point being, Satan was none too happy about that. And so... His demons were working overtime in Ephesus. And here they stirred up human agents to try to rise up in opposition to the gospel and to the way of the Christian faith and in opposition to the church of Jesus Christ. And it all started at the instigation of a certain man named Demetrius. Demetrius was a man who lived in Ephesus. By trade, it says he was a silversmith. And his business was to make shrines of the Greek goddess, false goddess of Artemis. A shrine is a temple, right? And in Ephesus, there was a huge, gaudy, very ornate, very famous temple that was devoted to the worship of this false goddess in the Greek pantheon, Artemis. And people would come from all around Asia, all around the empire, really, to be able to gather together in this temple and participate in idolatry, in false worship to Artemis. And the Ephesians were very, very, very proud of their temple. And this silversmith named Demetrius made his living crafting little miniature statues, little models of that pagan temple that were made out of silver. And people would buy these, see, and this is a lucrative business. Some people would would come from out of town to worship in the temple and they'd buy one of these little silver statues or models to take home with them, kind of as a souvenir, Other people would buy them to put them in their homes, kind of as their own little household shrine to be able to bow down and worship at home and pay homage to Artemis. And some people would buy them and then bring them with them to the actual temple and then give them as sort of votive offerings as they came and participated in the false worship there. 
And then they would be melted down again by the priests and that silver would be used to make more statues to the false goddess Artemis. So as you can imagine, and verse 24 says literally, this was a very lucrative business. And not just for Demetrius, but for all kinds of other craftsmen and workmen in the city of Ephesus. They made big bucks selling these little shrines made out of silver to people not just from Ephesus, but from all over Asia and all over the empire. And so the problem for them here now is what all these people are hearing the gospel. It's spreading like wildfire, not just in Ephesus, but all throughout Asia. And as people are hearing the gospel, they're believing on Jesus as the one and only true God, the only real way, the only truth, the only life, the only way to the Father. And as they're hearing and as they're believing, they're turning to Christ and they're turning away from all of their pagan practices and devotions. We saw it last week. They burned a huge pile of occultic books in the middle of Ephesus and and the worth of those books was extraordinary. Well, they're turning away from pagan things and worldly things and idolatrous things also included the worship of Artemis. And so see, the market for these little silver sculptures of the temple of Artemis was shrinking. That's a great thing, isn't it? What a wonderful thing that is. How awesome it would be and how awesome it is when the gospel, when the kingdom of God starts to disrupt the kingdom of darkness in this world in actual, tangible, measurable ways in this world. How wonderful if the pornography industry, if the abortion industry, if the illegal drug markets, if the human trafficking industry, if, if, if all the ways in which spiritual darkness becomes monetized in this world through the promotion of ungodliness and worldliness and immorality, how wonderful if all of that started to teeter and dry up and crumble because their customer bases started to dry up because the power of the gospel was redeeming people's lives from the pit. And they were being transformed by the renewing of their minds. And they were turning from vain things and to the living God. Wouldn't that be remarkable if we started to see that happening in measurable ways in Santa Cruz, in California, in America, in the world? People turning from vain things to the living God. Those were Paul's words. Remember Paul and Barnabas spoke those words back in Acts chapter 14? And people had mistook them for being gods. And so they were trying to worship Paul and Barnabas and offer sacrifices. And so Paul and Barnabas got frustrated and they tore their clothes and they cry out, Why are you doing this? Don't worship us. We're men of like nature as you. We're human. We're not gods. We bring you good news that you should turn from all of these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And Paul says that same exact thing in the first letter that he wrote to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. They report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you and how when we preached the gospel to you, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what happens when the gospel does its work. It transforms people's lives. And it makes them turn from godlessness in tangible ways and turn to the living God in the pursuit of holiness. And even though the opposition to the gospel would continue in the hearts and in the lives of people who believed, this is what was happening. They were believing and so they were repenting. They were turning from all of the vain things that had been the focus of their lives before and now they were turning and worshiping the living God because living faith in the living God, as we've seen before, remember, living faith doesn't just understand the truth, it doesn't just assent to the truth, it acts on the truth. Lives are changed by the gospel. Lives are transformed by the word of God. 
and changing lives make an impact in this world and in this culture and in the society that they're being lived in. And that's what was happening in Ephesus. There were enough people coming to faith in Jesus and turning from the vain idolatry that they'd grown up with and turning to the living God that it was making a a, a significant impact on the industry in Ephesus that depended on the idolatry. And recognize, recognize why. Recognize how this impact was and was not being made. The believers in Ephesus, the Christians in Ephesus, weren't going around and lobbying the city authorities to put a stop to the idol-making industry in the city. That wasn't their methodology, was it? That wasn't the means by which they were seeing this change happen. They weren't lobbying politicians. They weren't picketing the silversmith's shop throughout the cities. They weren't organizing protests in front of the temple of Artemis or demonstrations against the worship that went on there. That's not the kind of activity that they were engaged in. They weren't relying on earthly powers to make themselves popular among the people of Ephesus or to try to persuade the people of Ephesus. They were decidedly unpopular and yet God was at work. Because what they relied on was that word above all earthly powers. They preached the word. They proclaimed the word. They preached the gospel. And they let the divine, supernatural, sovereign power of God's word transform their lives. And then they lived those lives of growing holiness boldly, unashamedly, publicly for all to see as the Holy Spirit and the Word of God pushed out all of the old ways of fleshly idolatry and sin and conformed them more and more to the image of Christ. And in that way, fueled by the living, active Word of God and the Holy Spirit, the Word was flourishing and the Word was prevailing. Remember from last time? Against the forces of darkness in Ephesus, so much so that it was actually drying up the customer base of the idol-making industry. And Demetrius was freaking out about this. And so he held a meeting. He got all of the other silversmiths and craftsmen and workmen in the city together. All of those people, all of those men whose businesses, whose livelihoods were being threatened and negatively impacted by the power of the gospel, as the word of God continued to flourish and prevail over the satanic power of darkness and over all of the wicked and immoral and idolatrous garbage that had polluted that culture because of Satan's influence. And the fact that it was ultimately money that was driving Demetrius's opposition to the gospel, I mean... He's also, in in the coming verses here, he's also going to try to appeal to some sort of religious conviction. But really, it's all about money. And the fact that it's all about money is proven by the fact that this is the first thing that he says, right? Right out of the gate in verse 25. Men, you know that from this business of making these little idols, we have our wealth. That's what he's really worried about, isn't it? He starts by playing off of people's love of money. By playing off of people's fear of losing money. By playing off of the fear of financial ruin. Because again, the gospel is becoming so popular in Ephesus that people are worried that their whole trade of these little idolatrous statues might fall into ruin. And so Demetrius was dominated by the love of money and he knew that he could appeal to that same fleshly impulse in the lives of the other craftsmen and workmen there in Ephesus. So that's what he does. He appeals, look at verses 26 and 27, to their love of money and also to their idolatrous devotion to this pagan false goddess that they worship, especially the false goddess Artemis. 
And she was, again, worshipped very prominently there in Ephesus. You see, he says, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Demetrius was right, wasn't he? He was recognizing correctly that everywhere Paul was preaching, everywhere that the gospel was spreading and flourishing, it was not only affirming that Jesus is the only way to the Father, it was also denying the reality of gods that are made by human hands. Doesn't it seem to you like it should go without saying that things that are made by human hands aren't actually gods? That that things that their, their existence depends on human craftsmanship, that those things can't be and shouldn't be worshipped and looked to for some kind of help in this world. And, and yet this is what people do. Sinful human beings, since the beginning, have fashioned idols out of wood and stone and metal and imagined that somehow those things that they made are gods and that bowing before them is somehow beneficial to them, to human life. It's insanity, but, but it happens all the time. God points the irony of it out all over the place in the Old Testament. One of my favorite places, Isaiah chapter 46. He pictures people who have gone and fashioned these great big idols out of wood or out of stone. And they're so big and they're so heavy that they need to be carried around on carts. They can't move themselves. They just they sit there, Isaiah says. Unless you put them in a cart that, that gets drawn up by oxen. And then he says when the oxen are drawing them, they're so big and they're so heavy that, that it's a burden to the oxen. The ox gets weary dragging this god around. I love the imagery of it. So far are these idols from being any help to humans. Because they're, they're wearisome and burdensome to oxen. In Isaiah 44, God scoffs at the foolishness of people who go and cut down a tree and then use half of the wood to fashion a big idol and the other half they use to build a fire to warm themselves by. I mean, what good is an idol, what good is a so-called God that needs you to fashion it, first of all, and then secondly, leaves you to have to build your own fire to warm yourself out of the same wood that you carved the idol out of? It's not doing you any good, this God. What good is a so-called God that needs you to carry it? And that's a burden to your ox or to your donkey. How's it going to help you or anyone else? It's not. Because it's not real. It's not a God. Just a hunk of wood. Psalm 115 says you can carve eyes into it, but it can't see, obviously. You, you, can, you can carve ears, but it can't hear. And if you pray to it, it, it can't hear you. You can give it a mouth, but it can't speak to you like the true God has in His Word. Idols that people make with their hands are not gods. They're just pieces of wood. They're blind and deaf and dumb and ultimately worthless to serve you, to do any good for you. And Psalm 115 says, those who make them become like them. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and he's quoting again from Isaiah in chapter 41, he says, we know that an idol has no real existence. And we know that there is only one God. And that's what he's been preaching. That's what he's been proclaiming. That's what he's been telling people in Ephesus. And that's the word that's being spread all throughout Asia. And many people, a great many 
people, Demetrius acknowledges in verse 26, have been persuaded of this truth by the Holy Spirit through the power of the Gospel and the Word of God. And the reality is, Demetrius should have been persuaded. And the only reason why he wasn't, wasn't because somehow it was more sensible, somehow it was more reasonable for him to keep believing that things that human hands have fashioned are worthy of being worshipped. That's not reasonable at all. The only reason Demetrius wouldn't turn from his idolatry was because he was greedy. The only reason was because he continued to exchange the glorious truth of the living and true God for the ridiculous lies of idolatry that were more in keeping not with his reason, but with his greed. With his own depraved, sinful desires and passions, his materialistic greed, his love of money and the things of this world that money can buy. He loved that stuff more than he loved God. And that's the root of all idolatry, isn't it? So, Demetrius, who was a bitter, bitter opponent of the Christian faith, of the way, was forced to acknowledge, was forced to confess that the preaching of the gospel in Ephesus in Asia was was massively successful. And yet he stubbornly continued to oppose it because it was putting his business in jeopardy, because it was starting to disrupt his revenue stream. And this, of course, is very, very central to how the sinful mind and heart operates, how it works. Here in Ephesus, eternal souls are at stake. Eternity is at stake. And yet, these guys are just worried about money. These guys are more worried about material possessions and stuff. The priceless treasure of Jesus Christ and the gospel of the eternal kingdom of God is at hand, being offered to them for free. But people prefer the money and the things of this world. This is how the depraved human mind works. Just like all the throngs of people in Jesus' day who came chasing after Him, but not because they wanted Him, They wanted the things that He could do. They wanted the miracles that He could perform. They wanted the healing. They wanted the food. Remember, He multiplied the loaves and the fishes and then throngs of people started coming and following Him because they wanted a free lunch, literally. But they didn't want Him. And so eventually they ended up rejecting Him and rejecting the Gospel, rejecting the Kingdom and going back to their earthly lives instead of following Him. They just wanted the stuff. They didn't want the king. Or like, remember when Jesus was in Bethany nearing the end of his ministry and the end of his life on this earth and he was in the home of Simon for dinner with his disciples and Lazarus was there. Lazarus, who he just raised from the dead, was there. Mary and Martha were there and and Mary, remember, brought this big jar of expensive ointment over, like like a little bit of it would have been worth a lot of money, but she had this big, huge jar of it, and she used it all to anoint and to wash Jesus' feet. And then she dried His feet with her own hair as a sign of devotion and love to her Lord. And, and by the time she was done, the whole house was suffused with the, the smell, the fragrance, the aroma of that ointment. And John says in John chapter 12 that when that happened, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, became incensed about it, became indignant about it. Because the ointment was so costly. Was so, why are you wasting this expensive ointment on Jesus? He said, we could have sold that for a lot of money and given all the money to the poor. Because Judas was super noble, right? John exposes him. John says, 
he didn't care about the poor. Literally, John says that he didn't really care about the poor. Judas, see, was the one who used to carry the money bag around for Jesus and the disciples. Anytime anybody gave him any money, it went into this bag. And, and then when nobody was looking, Judas liked to dip in and put some in his pocket. And so he's going, man, if we had sold the ointment and put all that in the bag, I could have lined my pockets more. Judas was greedy. Judas didn't want to honor Jesus like Mary did. Judas wanted money. Judas loved money more than Jesus. And of course, <laughs> that was what motivated him to betray Jesus, right? For 30 pieces of silver. There in Simon's house, Jesus said, look, you're always going to have the poor with you. There's plenty of opportunities to meet people's needs out there, but you will not always have me. The Son of God will not always be in your physical midst. This is more important. There's nothing more valuable, right? You see the point? Jesus is the priceless treasure. Jesus is the pearl of great price. Jesus is the one who, if we have Him, we have everything and we can lose everything else. But Judas loved money more than Judas loved Jesus. And that love would motivate him to betray Jesus. This is how the sin-depraved mind works. It cares about self, it cares about money, it cares about worldly treasure more than it cares about the Creator of the world. The sinful mind values and desires and craves money and material stuff more than Christ Himself. And what a folly that is, right? Look what happened to Judas. Look how his story ended. And Jesus exposes the folly of prizing money more than prizing Him, more than prizing God, by saying, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? Let's say you could have all of it. Let's say all the money in all the world belonged to you. Let's say you owned every parcel of land in the whole world. What good is that if you lose your soul in eternity? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? I tell you this, hell will be filled with people who loved money more than they loved God, like Judas. And what an everlasting tragedy that people would easily, willingly forfeit their everlasting eternal souls for the stuff of this world, stuff that can't last. Stuff that fades, stuff that moths destroy, stuff that rust destroys, stuff that's just like vapor. It's here today, but it's gone tomorrow. But in Ephesus, Demetrius worked hard to convince people that the Christian faith was bad for them. And that the things of this world, the money of this world, and the idols of this world were better for them. Demetrius said, you know what, if Paul and if these Christians keep this up, then the temple of the great goddess Artemis might end up being regarded as nothing, as worthless. That's unimaginable. We can't have that. Go to Ephesus today. And all you can see are the ruins of the great temple of Artemis. And it's been that way for many, many centuries. Demetrius said... Artemis may even be deposed from her magnificence, she who all Asia and the world worship. Now we just read about it in history books that people used to worship some imaginary goddess named Artemis. But back then it was everything to Demetrius. Our livelihoods are in danger, he said. We've got to do something. And so, Demetrius succeeded in stirring up rage among the craftsmen and the workmen of the cities against the way and against the truth, against Christ and against His church, against His gospel, against the Word of God. The challenge 
to their idolatrous beliefs and the threat of financial disaster was too much for their sinful, greedy souls to bear. And so they were filled with rage, verse 28 says. And they started crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And then they charged out into the streets in this, in this riotous throng of chaos. The whole city came to be filled with confusion, verse 29 says. And the crowd of rioters all gathered together. It's one of those things that got bigger and bigger as it went. People go, well, everybody's upset and we don't really understand why, but we're going to be upset too. Doesn't that happen today? Some cause upsets a bunch of people and they make a bunch of noise and then all of a sudden the whole nation's in an uproar. And if you ask them why, they can't really articulate it very well. It's just, we better be a part of this populist cause right now. And we better make a bunch of noise about it. And that's what was happening here. And then they all went into the theater, it says. The theater was, was a big, huge public place in Ephesus that was capable of holding over 20,000 people. And so the whole city flooded into this place. It was used for public assemblies. And, and this one included everybody in the whole city. And they all charged in here. And on their way, they seized two of Paul's companions, Gaius and Aristarchus. And these guys' lives were in danger because this angry mobs got them. And Paul heard about what was going on, and he wanted to go into the middle of this crowd to try to help his friends, to try to stand in the fray, to try to reason with people, to try to defend the gospel and the honor of Jesus Christ. Paul was never afraid of that kind of thing, was he? You remember what happened back in Lystra and Derby, right? When they dragged him outside of the city and stoned him, they thought to death. And his disciples even thought he was dead. He was so beat up. He wasn't moving. And what what are we going to do now that Paul's dead? And then Paul shakes it off and gets up and says, well, what we're going to do is go back and keep preaching the gospel. Paul's not afraid to, to put himself in harm's way, right? And that's what he was ready to do, but his disciples recognized how, how frenzied and crazed this mob was, and they knew that for Paul to go in there would, would endanger his life, so they restrained Paul. But if it was up to Paul, he would have done it. He would have shoved his way through that crowd. Over in chapter 20, when we get there next time, he says, I do not account my life of any value or as being precious unto myself. The only thing I want is to be able to finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I don't, I don't care about my life. I care about my Lord and I care about His gospel and I care about preaching it and finishing that course well. But his friends didn't want him to risk his life at this time, so they restrained him. And then look at verse 31, it says, Even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of Paul, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. The Asiarchs were a group of the most wealthy people from all throughout the province of Asia. They were members of the noblest, wealthiest families of Asia and what they had done, the reason they were called Asiarchs is because they kind of banded together and formed a sort of a, a league or a co-op. And the purpose of that league and co-op was to defend and to promote the imperial cult of Rome. The imperial cult was the false religion of Rome that venerated the emperors of Rome as gods. That's who the Asiarchs were. They were rich, influential people who were committed to emperor worship. So do you see how powerful the gospel was? In Ephesus and in Asia, some of those guys, they didn't see Paul's gospel as a threat, and they're friends of Paul's now. Because God is so powerfully at work through His Word, these guys are step- these influential people are stepping in to protect Paul. Meanwhile, the situation in the theater is 
utter and complete chaos, as you can imagine. In their idolatry, these opponents of the gospel have become absolutely crazed in their anger. This is the the typical way that mob mentality works. Nobody really knows what's up. Nobody really knows what's going on. They're all just happy to be angry. They're all just happy to tear something apart. This is like like downtown Portland a couple years ago, right? This is the, the typical way that the world reacts to God and to His truth, and His definitions of justice, and morality, and and the gospel. The kings of the earth rage against God. The kings of the earth shake their fists at Him. The kings of the earth rally the people of the earth to rage against God and His truth. You remember back in Acts chapter 7, before Paul had even been converted on the Damascus road, Stephen had preached the gospel. And the people were so enraged that they started gnashing their teeth at him and eventually they ended up killing him. In Acts 16, in Philippi, you remember what happened? Another mob got together and in their rage they attacked Paul and Silas and the chief magistrates of the city, shaking their fists at God, stripped Paul and Silas of all of their clothes and ordered that they be beaten severely with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them safely. And you remember, don't you? You remember how well that episode ended in Philippi, right? God caused a great earthquake to shake the doors of the prison open, to shake the chains off of all the prisoners. And in the end, the jailer himself and all of his household ended up hearing the gospel, ended up believing, ended up being baptized. And so God's word worked powerfully through the persecution, through the unrest. Well, here, the ferocity of the mob's anger becomes infectious. It led to this Massive confusion. Some people, verse 32 says, some people were saying one thing, others were saying something completely different. What are we upset about? Well, these guys have, maybe nobody really knows exactly what all the fuss is about. Some people in the crowd wanted to quiet things down, and so they grabbed a Jewish guy named Alexander and kind of pushed him forward to say something, and he started to. But when all of the craftsmen who started all of this commotion, when they recognized that Alexander was a Jew, that just renewed their fervor. And they started shouting over and over again, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And and they did that for two hours. They didn't want anything close to the one true biblical God. So this went on and on. Finally, the town clerk managed to restore some semblance of order. And in verses 35 through 41, the end of the chapter here, he succeeds in making this kind of, this kind of pragmatic and political appeal for them to calm down. In verses 35 and 36, the town clerk basically says, Look, guys. If Artemis is so great, then why are you worried that this Christians, these Christians are going to threaten her? I mean, again, the irony is pretty thick there, right? They've, they've got, they're, they're so upset in defense of Artemis, they've got, but they've got so little confidence in this goddess that they think is so great that they're having to defend her and not the other way around. In verse 37, the clerk says, these guys aren't actually being sacrilegious. And the word there means um, thievery. It means to steal. It means to plunder. So what he's saying is, it's not like they're going and ripping the temple apart, right? It's not like they're stealing artifacts from the temple of Artemis. They're not robbing the temple. They're not plundering the temple. They're not thieves. And he says, they're not even using bad language to speak poorly of Artemis. They're just talking about their God. What are you so upset about? Don't do anything rash, he pleads with them. And if they do do something illegal, let the courts sort it out. 
And his argument basically comes down to this. If you keep carrying on like this, then we are in danger of being charged with rioting for no good reason. See, nothing mattered in the Roman Empire. Nothing mattered more to the Roman government than to maintain peace within their empire. And so if, uh, if an area or a city like Ephesus didn't keep it together, didn't maintain the peace, if they allowed all kinds of rioting, then Rome might withdraw their favor from Ephesus and deny them a lot of the privileges that came from being in Rome's good graces, or they might actually punish them. And again, these people are motivated by greed, right? Well, we can't have that. It might be worse for us. And so by God's providence and by common grace, the clerk's appeal succeeded. It was effective. It worked because the people are motivated by earthly things like money. And so the prospect of losing Rome's favor, that weighed a lot in the scales for them. And they all ended up calming down because the city clerk of Ephesus was no dummy. He understood what motivated the riot in the first place. And he kept his cool. He figured out how to appeal to the people in a way that they would respond to, and they did. But also, and much more importantly, of course, much more significantly, the sovereign God working through the Ephesian town clerk, he provided for his people and he protected his church. And the gates of hell did not prevail that day. And so, the Apostle Paul was not lynched by this riotous mob in Ephesus. And the Christians in the city were not all rounded up and executed or thrown into prison. And the Christian faith, the way, was not outlawed in Ephesus. The gospel was not squelched. Well, Demetrius' godless, idolatrous riot was squelched. And through it all, God sovereignly worked, didn't He? The church was preserved. The church would go on to grow in Ephesus and all throughout Asia and become a powerful force for good in that part of the world. God worked sovereignly through the fiery trial, through the waters that ran deep through Ephesus on that day. God worked to strengthen His church and to refine the faith of His people and to cause them to stand firm. Because it's when you have to stand against opposition that you have to stand strong. It's easy to be bold when nobody's opposing you, isn't it? But the truth is told, right? The real story of our faith is told when we have to stand firm and we might have to suffer for it. See, this is what fiery trials do. They strengthen, they purify, they refine. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. And the word test means to refine you. Don't be surprised as though something strange is happening because this is how it works in this world that hates God. We have to be made strong. We have to be forged by the fire. So Peter says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. When's His glory going to be revealed? When He returns. He's talking about the second coming. And the question is, are you ready for that day when He returns? Aren't you ready for it? Aren't you longing for it? I pray for it every day. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And every day that He doesn't come, remember, is a day where He is still gathering people unto Himself. A day when the Gospel is still going out. A day when all of the falsehood of this world is still being confronted. 
And even though it seems like evil is reigning in our world, God is reigning from on high. And every day that Christ does not return is a day when souls will be saved and a day when the fiery trials of this world will purify and sanctify and refine and strengthen and forge the faith of the people of God, making us ready for His coming. God uses groanings, God uses trials, God uses afflictions, God uses sorrows and and the sufferings of life in this world and even persecution, outright overt opposition to the gospel. He uses those things to get us ready, to prepare us, to pry our fingers off of all of the fleeting things of this passing world, to remind us those aren't the things that we need ultimately. They don't last. When they're taken from us, it hurts us and it makes us afraid so that we can turn to Him and say, oh, but I have You. And I have the promise and I have the kingdom and I have eternity to stake my hope to. I don't need the things of this world. And so God uses all of the hardship to tune our hearts to be able to treasure Christ, to be able to treasure the kingdom instead of vainly storing up our treasures here. Prize Him, value Him, and be willing and be ready to forsake everything for Him. In this world you will have tribulation, Jesus promised. Don't be surprised by it. Don't be surprised that the world who hated Him isn't too keen on those who love Him, who stand firm for Him and for His truth that the world hates, that the world despises. Don't be surprised that when you stand firm and let your light shine in the darkness of this world, the prince of darkness himself stands up and opposes you and tries to convince you through making your life miserable that trusting and honoring God in your life isn't going to get you nearly as much as turning from God and doing things your way and doing what's right in your own eyes and following after your own desires. Isn't that what Satan wants us to believe? Same thing as he tried to get Adam and Eve to believe in the garden. You do things his way, you're not going to have nearly as much as if you do things your own way. And Satan will try to use pain to convince you of that. But if you trust God, he will use that pain, that same pain to refine you and to strengthen you, and to forge in you a faith that cannot fail. Everything that the devil means for evil, your sovereign heavenly Father means for your good. He means to use it to burn away all of the impurities of sin and fleshly, worldly desire and use or, or to leave the pure gold of, of Christ and His kingdom as the true desire and ultimate desire of your heart. And so that's why Paul, who suffered way more persecution than you and I probably will ever imagine or taste, that's why he could say in Colossians 1, 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings. See? In Philippians, he said, I've learned how to be content in all circumstances, whether I've been brought low or exalted to some place of blessing by God's goodness. Here, though, in Colossians, he says, he rejoices in his sufferings. He says it again in Romans 5. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that through the forging fire of suffering, God produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope that will not put us to shame. Now if we think that God is not all-powerful, if we think that God is not comprehensively sovereign over everything that goes on in this world, if we turn our minds from the truth of who God is and view our suffering through the lens of our own feelings 
That's when we're not content in all things. That's when we get afraid. That's when we panic. That's when we get anxious. And that's when we get bitter. We don't rejoice in our suffering. And we become tempted to succumb to the devil's schemes to make us turn from God and lean on our own understanding and do what's right in our own eyes in order to try to secure for ourselves what we think we need in this world aside from Christ. So we have to keep our eyes fixed on who God is. And if we remember, He is all-powerful, He is sovereign, but if we forget the fact that also He's good in all that He does. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Romans 8.28 If we forget the goodness part, then we'll be tempted to think that when trials come that God's allowing us to endure, we'll think they don't serve any purpose in our lives. And we'll be tempted to be frustrated and and discouraged and to chafe against submitting to those trials and submitting to the God who ordains them as His means of doing something good in our lives. And again, we'll be tempted to avoid the pain by avoiding Him, by avoiding trusting Him. And we'll turn back in on ourselves. But see, if and when we recognize that God is not just all-knowing, not just all-powerful, not just totally sovereign, but also that He's always good in all that He ordains, and all that He allows, then, see, when we face the opposition of this world and the devil, when we encounter the trials and the afflictions and the sufferings that test our faith, then we know, then we can be confident and content and rejoice in the reality that God is doing something good. He's using those trials, even the ones that the devil intends for our harm, God is using them as our Father for our good. And so, where the church is faithful and bold, We can expect the devil to be hard at work, to afflict and to cause suffering, to discourage, to distract, to tempt. But never forget that the devil is not the sovereign one. He is God's devil. Our God would use all of these things for our good and for our growth as he refines and purifies and strengthens us for his glory. Let's close with this quote. Charles Spurgeon says this, If the devil never roars at you, then the church will never sing. God is not doing much if the devil is not awake and busy. Depend upon it. A working Christ makes a raging devil. And so when you hear ill reports or cruel speeches or threats or taunts and the like, believe that the Lord is among His people and is working gloriously. Amen? Let's pray and then we'll sing. Our God and our Father, we need Your help to keep us mindful of the truths that we learn from Your Word. And so we pray, would You give us confidence in the fact that You are Almighty, that You are Sovereign, that You are good, And that in your faithfulness and in your fatherly kindness and goodness and care and love for us as your children, you use all kinds of things and work them all together for our good. Father, help us not to be bitter. Help us not to grumble and be discontent. Help us not to panic. Help us not to be driven by anxiety and fear in this world. Help us to stand firm. Help us to rejoice in our sufferings even as you would use them to forge our faith and to make us strong and bold for the truth in the midst of the darkness of this world. And so, Father, glorify yourself in your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.